The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, church. How y'all doing today? Hey, grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Next week, we start a brand new series. We're going to be in the book of Luke starting next week. And some of you are like, hey, years ago, when, when you were first starting your church, didn't you teach like through the gospels and teach a bunch of stuff in Luke? Yep. Why are you doing it again? Because I taught it wrong and I'm going to do it right this time. So we're going to be in the book of Luke starting next week. It's going to be a great, great time. Make sure you join us. Um, we also, by the way, have a series starting. Our Wednesday night services start back on the 13th and we have a series starting then that is going to be called uh, Live Like Jesus. And each week we're going to be taking on a different element um, of what life looks like to live like Jesus. So make sure you join us in that. Um, a couple of announcements for you. Uh, for His Glory Women's Retreat, sign-ups in today. There's a big women's retreat coming up here pretty soon. It's going to be a one-day Saturday thing. It's not an out-of-towner or anything like that. But here, uh, gathered together, last I heard, there's some 300 women already signed up for this. It's going to be a really big event. Um, Stephanie Strom and some others are going to be sharing about some of the stuff they've been through um, over the last season, if you know her story. Um, and so really encourage you gals to sign up. And you guys, uh, those of you that have families and stuff, take on the kids that week week or whatever it is, but make sure that your wife gets to come and join. We do need you to sign up so that we know how many to prepare for. So either sign up on the website, or if you would go right now to, or not right now, but right after service to the connect desk on the way out, and they can help you with that. Um, also heritage basics class is this coming Saturday. So that's with me this coming Saturday from nine to noon at our office, which is right next door, the hub, we call it the hub right next door. Um, if you're interested in becoming a covenant member here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, um, this class is for you. It's a prerequisite to covenant membership here at Heritage, and it's a really great time um, to spend the morning with me, and we're going to talk through everything from our history, belief system, mission, theology, opportunities for questions, you name it, as well as getting to meet some other people in the same kind of category. So um, we need you to sign up for that as well. Um, you can do that again through the website or stop by the Connect Desk on the way out, and I'm looking forward to spending the morning with some of you guys next Saturday. And then also, um, hurricane relief is, you guys know, I mean, there's really two things going on right now. I mean, obviously I was just telling Sam, I was like, if we didn't know better, I'd think you bought a smoke machine for the worship service. And cause it, we like had this haze in here, but, but honestly, like we're just in a place right now in the Pacific Northwest and Oregon in particular, as you guys know, it's terrible out there. Um, the fires, the, the amount of people that are out there away from family right now, putting themselves at risk and in jeopardy to protect us is an awesome thing. We're so thankful for that. And we want to pray for that and, um, and really remember those guys, not just complain about air quality, but when you complain about air quality, pray for those that are out there working really hard to bring back good air, you might say. So keep that in mind. Um, the, the one blessing that we do have is that still at night, the vast, vast, vast majority of Oregonians are still going home to homes and getting out of the bad air by going inside their houses. And if you've been following the news the last week in Texas, you know, that's not the case 
down there. Um, but there's an opportunity that you can give. I've put links on the church Facebook and Instagram pages that you can find. But um, if you give through the Acts 29 network, and specifically clearcreek.org is a church on the ground right there in Texas. Their pastor is a guy I've gotten to know named Bruce Wesley. Um, their teaching pastor is Yancey Arrington. So those of you men who went to man camp this year, Yancey is the guy who came up and spoke at man camp this year. Their church is right there on the ground and they are Acts 29, the network that we're a part of is funneling money through um, Clear Creek Church. And that's a really good way to give because you're not creating a brand new nonprofit just to administer funds and having to actually pay people to do that. You've already got staff, people who are being paid by the church already. So everything that you give goes directly towards relief efforts and to those who need it. So um, go to our church Facebook page, go to our website, go to any of the Acts 29 websites. All those things have that link. And just so you know as well, um, we as a church have given a five thousand dollar donation to Clear Creek Church for that as well. So um, we're going to pray for them here in just one moment as we're doing this and just continue to keep them in prayer and pray that the church is able to use that not just to meet needs and, and help people through all this stuff, um, but also that, that it becomes a real gospel opportunity as they see gospel people. Um, and I heard someone say that in the initial moments when, when these kind of things go down, kind of everybody's there from the government, you name it, all the way down. And then as months go by, it's just bigger organizations that are still there, that are there working and doing the help. But what they said is that in disasters like this that can take years to recover from, it's the Christians that tend to be the ones that are sticking it out over the long haul. And so let's just pray that that's what happens for a gospel impact in Texas. And, um, and then also one last thing, and this is kind of funny because um, I didn't plan any of this, just so you know. Um, it's Labor Day this weekend, right? Um, the text we're about to look at is admonishing the idol and telling people if they don't work, they don't eat. And then the last book that I have to give away out of the big batch of books that I bought at the beginning of the summer to give away at times, and I didn't plan this, just ended up this way, is a book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. So I don't know, God's working on a theme today, it seems like. Uh, but this is a phenomenal book. Some of you guys remember one of my favorite books that I've read in recent history is uh, Kevin DeYoung's book called Crazy Busy, a mercifully short book about a really big problem. And he's known for those kinds of titles, like long, drawn-out titles that are a little bit humorous and get to the point of the book because that's the way he writes. They're, they're poignant, they're impactful, but they're also funny at times. Well, this book is actually called Just Do Something, colon, a liberating approach to finding God's will, or how to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, magic eight balls, etc. But the idea is just about this whole idea of finding God's will. Is that some puzzle we have to solve so that we make sure that we're pleasing God with our life? And, and he's really going to simplify the idea of what is God's will for my life. So I got two copies. You guys know the rules, right? You have to... And then you give it away. Read it and give it away. And by the way, if you guys have books at home that you've already read, or maybe most likely those books that are sitting there that we keep kidding ourselves that we're eventually going to read, if we're just going to be honest about it and be like, yeah, I'm not going to read that, bring it back at any time. You can always put it up here on the stage. Any book you guys see up here is free for the taking. So I'm going to put one there. Don't get up out of your seats now. Do it after service because it's more fun for us to watch. Um, now, if you would please, join me on your feet. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
And I want to take a quick moment. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand now. I guess I should have done that before you get to see. But if you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up. They'll make sure that you get one. If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you. Sorry, I forgot to do that. Now, why do we do this right now? I like to every once in a while remind us why we're doing this. Even in, in worship and communion just now, those of you guys that track with us all the time, you know that, that there were some intentional breaks that we did during worship there that's outside of the norm. Um, you might even say to some degree, but with a lowercase l, even liturgical in a sense. Why do we do that? Why do we do this, where we stand together and read the word, and then Jeff says, this is the word of God, and we all say, uh, thanks be to God. Like, why do, why do we do that? And some of you guys come from old church or high church backgrounds where that was so formulaic that it gets ingrained in you as a kid. Why do we do these things? I thought this was a fellowship-style church where we don't worry about any of that junk. Well, that's kind of true. But you can throw the baby out with the bathwater sometimes. And sometimes it's good for us to stop and pause and remember that we're part of something much, much bigger than ourselves. That we are tied into 2,000 years of the tangible, historical workings of God. And, and also to remember, this is a gift. Like, this is a privilege. Do you guys know the history of how this Bible got in your hands? Study that sometime. Do you know how much blood was spilt? Wars were fought. To even put the Bible in English, people died that we might hold this. Do you know how many attacks from the enemy, just full-blown spiritual warfare have existed over the years to prevent you from reading this book that's in your hand, much less just prevent you from even wanting to read the book that's in your hand at times? It is a gift that's worth slowing down and remembering. And for us as a church... Well, we might not be a liturgical high church. It's good for us once in a while. And the reason we do this when we read the text before we study is because it's reminding us that we're part of a history. Because people early in the church who didn't have these things, when, when one guy who was only the pastor or maybe became the pastor because he did have the Bible, who knows, but, but would gather together and read the word, it was so special and it was so rare that people stood, not because the church told them to, but people stood out of reverence just like, this is the word of God. God is speaking to us. We want to stand. And then when the pastor would read it, he would say, this is the word of the Lord. And he meant it not liturgically, but literally, God just spoke to you. And the people would respond, thanks be to God, out of a genuine joy-filled worship and appreciation for the specialness of that moment. So we do this every once in a while to just slow down. Remember who we are, remember the history of our people, remember what we're a part of, and to remind ourselves to be thankful that we have the word of God at the expense of much blood and warfare over the years. We have God's word. And God's word in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 says, now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do pause now and thank you for your word. We stand in honor of it. And may our hearts, minds, spirit, soul be bowed before you in reverence to you, not wanting to lord over the text, but allowing you to lord over us. May you speak to us. May we humbly receive it. May it take root in our lives and may we live differently as if we didn't know it to be true. We pray, God, for those in Texas. We pray, God, for those bringing aid. We pray, God, for the firemen on the line here. We pray for all of those things and pray, God, that your will would be done there, but to your glory and comfort, not ours. And we pray, God, as well, that these would be gospel opportunities, even as we see others following the gospel example, setting themselves at risk and their comfort aside for the benefit of others. May you bless those who are doing so. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Marriage is beautiful, right? And maybe not all the smoke-filled wedding pictures that we're seeing on Instagram right now, but a normal wedding picture that we would see, they're beautiful, right? Everybody's done up just right. Sun's at just the right angle. The poses are perfect. They're beautiful. But not just in photography. I mean, just in real life, the whole concept of marriage, it's a beautiful thing. The idea that one person would say to the other person that I'm going to stick it out with you and I'm going to give of myself to you and I'm going to commit to this for the rest of my life against everybody else on the planet. That is a beautiful and amazing thing that someone would do such a thing. Marriage is beautiful and yet messy. Because when two people get married, in spite of all the, the beauty and the oh, of all the whole kind of thing, in reality, what's happening is two narcissists are coming together. <laughs> and we laugh, but it's real. I mean, we are by nature selfish. We are by nature self-serving. And by experience, until the time that we get married or between, but until the time someone gets married... Your own life experiences kind of teach you that. I mean, that's what you're doing. You pay your bills, you buy your food. You don't have to deal with a lot of the messes that can come with that because you don't have to worry about that. You don't know what it's like to argue over every time you're going to go out to eat, what restaurant are you going to go to? You don't know what it's like to have all of those different kind of things because it doesn't matter. You're, you get what you want to eat. You buy the food that you like. You do the things on your schedule. You don't have to worry about all those other things. But when two people get married who have all that stuff in their background and they come together, it can get really messy. Because the concept of marriage, especially biblical marriage, is now you're putting the other person's needs over yours. And that's hard and messy. And every once in a while that old nature comes up and things start to conflict and we fight. Yeah, Christians fight. Those kinds of things happen. Marriage is beautiful, but let's not be too idealistic about it. Marriage is messy. Children are beautiful. <laughs> Children are beautiful. 
children are little cute, little babies, tiny little babies. A friend of mine had a baby not long ago, and she's posting pictures. This baby right now is at the place where it's making all the facial expressions and all this kind of stuff. And you see the pictures on Instagram, and you see the social media, and you're just, oh, they're beautiful. If you were an alien from outer space, and you knew nothing about raising children except what you saw on Instagram, you would think it's the greatest thing in the world to ever do. You want to do it right now. But no one posts photos on Instagram changing diapers. No one. Not to mention, it gets even messier. Children are beautiful. Children are messy. Because not, not only the snot and the poop and all the other stuff that happens, but remember, in marriage, two narcissists come together in the same household. And as they're learning not to be narcissists, what did they do? They just added more narcissists to the whole thing. Because they are. Children are beautiful, but they're narcissists. Cry in the middle of the night because they're hungry. Not once do they stop and go, well, you know, mom's asleep and she does a lot for me. I mean, I'm hungry, but I want to put my needs aside and put the needs of my mother ahead of my own and allow her to sleep a good ex. In fact, I'm going to let her sleep till eight. I'll be fine. She always feeds me. I don't need to freak out and cry. I'll set all that stuff aside around eight, eight thirty. We'll see. Then I'll just say, hey, dear mother, <laughs> might I partake in some nourishment? It's never happened in the history of babies. Think about that. That has never, ever, not one time in the history of babies that's never happened. What happens? I'm hungry. Feed me now. That's what they're crying in baby language. Feed me now. And, and that's not even just the whole growing up part. Babies are selfish. Six-year-olds are selfish. Teenagers are incredibly selfish. And think how messy that then becomes. If in marriage, two selfish narcissists are coming into the same house and learning not to be and learning how to put the other people's needs first, think how complicated it then becomes where while you're trying to figure that out, your job is not to teach them how to do it at the same time, which all it seems to do is rub against your own narcissism the whole time. Children are beautiful. Children are messy. Church is beautiful. But it's messy. Because if in marriage it's two, if in child rearing it's three, four, five, whatever, in church it's, in our case, it's hundreds. So now what happens? Imagine the messes now. And there's a sense in which it's harder. A sense in which it's harder because in marriage you picked them. Like it's your fault. You know what I mean? Like you picked them. But you also know them and you love them and apparently you have interests and all those kinds of things. And in child rearing, I... I like, they're yours, but in church, like, sometimes we barely know them. We don't have, we don't know each other's history. We don't know the landmines that we're stepping on because we don't know the backstory to people's lives. We don't understand why, if, why we offend people in certain ways and why they can't just get over this and why is this happening? Why doesn't this person understand my heart in this and all these misunderstandings and then social media comes and makes everything worse and all that kind of stuff. Like we don't understand all that. And so suddenly the intent to come in as the people of God in the church and say that we're gonna set the needs of someone else first and deal with it, it's messy. And we have this idealistic view of what the early church was like. In fact, there are many people, they write books about it, which is so dumb. If they would research, they would write the book differently. But we'll write books about, if we could just get back to the simplicity of the early church. And we have this mindset in us that everything was so 
easy and man they were just led by the spirit and they just got together they were just so happy that they loved Jesus they never had any problems and they if we could just get back to that that's what the church should really look like and it's this idealistic view that is absolutely unbiblical it would be amazing but what I mean by that is like the Bible teaches a completely different story because over and over and over in the story Paul deals with messes He deals with selfish people. He deals with people who during communion are literally getting drunk in communion regularly. He deals with sexual immorality. He deals with a guy in one church who is apparently, it seems, having sex with his mother. He deals with all sorts of different things. He's constantly addressing messes in the church. Now, the church is beautiful, but it's messy. And here's why we should expect that. Listen to what Peter says. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says, As you come to him, speaking about Jesus, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. Let's use the analogy of a building. Ever been on a construction site? There might be joy and excitement about what's being built, but while the house is being built, it's messy. Houses don't tend to come like Ikea projects. And I don't mean complicated, I mean pre-cut, pre-fit. Everything just fits. If it doesn't fit, it's a part for a different one, so we should put it elsewhere. It might be exciting, it might be beautiful, but it's messy. And it's okay to be honest about that. I saw, speaking of the parent example, um, kids are going back to school this week. And the only mothers who cry when their kids, I saw someone's talking about this, the only mothers who cry when their kids go back to school are kindergarten moms. Because everyone else is like, oh, it's so peaceful once they go. So kindergarten moms are like, oh, baby's first day is growing up. Every other age category is like, extra coffee, I might have morning wine, we'll see. We love our kids, but they're messy. We love our spouses, but they're messy. We love our church, but it's messy. And in Paul's analogy, the thing we need to remember is that something's being built. And job sites, I used to do engineering. I used to go to these big commercial projects and even more than like wood frame houses. Man, you go to big buildings, industrial projects, hospitals, things like that, that our company used to build. Man, they are, they are messy They are smelly, they are noisy, there is sawing, there is hammering, there is grinding, there is nails and screws, guys get hurt. There's all sorts of things that are happening inside a building project. And Paul uses, excuse me, Peter uses that example when he's talking about what God is doing with the church and he uses it appropriately because the idea is this. A lot of people when they get married, and they have that idealistic view, everything's just gonna be a Disney movie from here on out, and then they start to see the messes, the temptation can be, oh, you know what the problem is? I got the wrong one. It's the wrong part. Doesn't fit. And this is abrasive now, and uncomfortable now, and I don't don't like this now, and so there's this temptation to separate and go, well, I messed up, and I picked the wrong person. And the narcissism kicks in. Like we might even say, it's not you, it's me, but we don't mean that. And we go, clearly something's not working here. And this abrasion, this noise, this mess is an evidence that it's not working because I had an idealistic mindset and it's not there and there's too much effort required, so I'm gonna bail. 
And people do that with kids, sadly. I mean, we have complete organizations dedicated to taking care of kids that families have rejected. And people do it with church all the time. We can be incredibly narcissistic about church, which is the gathering of people made possible through Jesus' self-sacrificing, non-narcissistic approach that brings the people together. We can have the same approach because we can go to a church and be like, how'd you like it? And we treat it like a restaurant. Well, food was good. Service was slow. Um, I didn't like the wait time. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. I didn't like this and a lot of things. Now, now there can be legitimate reasons why a church doesn't fit you, theological reasons or things like that, for sure. But what tends to happen is if we're not aware of our own narcissism, if we're not aware of our own self-centered habits, like our nature, then what we end up doing is we end up feeding those things when God is actually trying to grind those things away. So what we'll do is we'll be a part of a church community with a bunch of people and we'll go, you know what, I just, oh, it's just abrasive. Those people, I don't like them and I, I don't fit here. I don't fit here. Let me find a place where I fit. Well, maybe, maybe the problem isn't, yeah, you don't fit, but, but it's not because they were the wrong fit. It, you don't fit maybe because God is grinding off some selfishness. God is grinding off some narcissism. God is building something. This is what, Peter himself says, when God brings the church together, he's building something. And Jesus is the cornerstone of that, but we are these living stones. And so it doesn't come like an Ikea project where we're all perfect. We just find our fit. No, it's about, it has to be cut to size. Holes have to be drilled. Sanding has to happen. There are abrasive things that happen. But when we take a narcissistic or self-centered approach, we go, ooh, that makes me uncomfortable. That was uncomfortable. They hurt me. That was abrasive. And we have a tendency, especially in our culture, to look at abrasion as a sign that something's wrong, which is kind of true. It's just that we look everywhere to find the wrong thing except for ourselves. And maybe God is saying, yeah, you don't fit, but I'm working on you. Yeah, you don't fit in perfectly with them. They don't fit in perfectly with you, but I'm doing something here. You know Jesus was a carpenter, right? And I'm doing something here. I'm building something here. I'm working on something. Church is messy. It's beautiful, but it's messy, and it's supposed to be. And to have an idealistic approach, even when we're church hopping or church shopping or whatever it is, is to go into the experience of what it means to be a Christian naively. And then to run from every abrasion might be to escape something God's actually trying to do in you. What does that all mean? Well, Paul, think about it. Early church, oh, if we could just get back to the early church. He's always dealing with issues. He's always dealing with difficulties. He's always dealing with things, but he loves the church and he's always encouraging the church and praying for the church and reminding them that it's worth the effort. It's painful, it's abrasive, it's messy, it's hard, and it's good. And that's today's sermon. So you can go if you need to. But the rest of us, we're going to go on in. Here's what he says. Look at verse six. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So here's the first thing I want to point out before we go. Paul's initial call to them is, hey guys, something's wrong in the church. And you should know that something's wrong in the church because I showed you how to live. Paul is constantly saying to people, 
imitate me. Now, he goes on to say what? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. But he does say imitate me. And so here's just a little challenge right out the gate that you can think about. When's the last time, Christian, you said to anybody, imitate me? Most of us would be terrified to say such things, right? Or we have this belief that like, no, that's, you can't, you got to be humble. You can't say something like that. Not at all. It's not true. Most of Christianity is caught, not taught. And so there is an actual place for mature believers in Christ to tap other people on the shoulder and say, imitate me. Not imitate my selfishness, imitate me as I imitate Christ, which is what? Selflessness, servanthood, giving. He goes on, uh, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, that's why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Think about that. In the Bible, inspired by God's words, Paul said, hey, I sent Timothy for you to remind you of my ways. Now, an initial hearing of that seems wrong. Like, to remind you, no, Paul, don't write that. That's bad theology. You should say to imitate Jesus's ways. Well, I mean, he does, but he's pointing them to himself and as an example of Jesus's ways. And that's discipleship. That's good. But how many of us are terrified of that? Now, most of us who even believe in that and be like, man, that would be great. A lot of us will take the approach and I will do that as soon as I get good enough myself. Well, by the time you get good enough yourself, Jesus will be here. We'll all be perfect and that's not going to help out so much. So let's just ditch that idea. But I can tell you this much. I guarantee you, nobody in this church learns as much from a sermon that's given here as the guy who teaches it. I didn't wait to learn Thessalonians to teach it. I had a mission and a plan God gave me in my life. And so I'm studying Thessalonians as I teach it. And I'm telling you, you learn more doing that. And the same thing goes through with discipleship. If you get someone and you say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ, and watch and see if that's not also what God uses to grow you up in the process. Because suddenly there's a whole new level of importance, right? I mean, how many times do we see like young couples? Oh, look at them. They're just so, they don't even get life. They're like, oh, they're just traveling everywhere. They're so irresponsible. They never save money. Sure hope the kid grows them up, right? Suddenly you got to take care of someone else and, and a new level of responsibility comes on. The same thing happens in the church. So just a little challenge. Some of you guys have been following Jesus 20, 30 years. People in this church, three weeks. Three weeks they had to watch Paul. How many of you need to tap somebody on the shoulder and say, follow me as I follow Christ? Now, Paul specifically in this letter has one in particular thing he wants them to understand and imitate. What is it? Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, here is kind of the, the word for the day, if you will, with, with regards to this message and what Paul's doing, I would say would be the idea of countercultural. And, and let me explain. <coughs> Paul seemed to live according to a certain philosophy when it came to money. Um, he was a church planner. He would go to a city, plant a church, 
raise up leaders, and then he would move on to the next city and kind of through letters and whatnot, keep tabs on what's going on. He's what you'd refer to as a pioneer church planner. He's, he's more entrepreneur, honestly, than pastoral in that sense. Like he's always going and planting the next one and then going to plant the next one and then go to plant the next one. Now, when he did that, he argued strongly that a pastor deserves, or any of the elders who were full-time dedicated to that particular congregation, that they had the right to make a salary as they did it, to, to live doing so, so that they could be freed up to give themselves completely to the church. He believed that. He writes about it extensively. Jesus talks about that as well. But here's what he did. When he would plant the church, he never lived off the money of the church plant as it was being planted. Now, he would live and have no problem accepting a gift, say, from the, Phili uh, the Philippian church while he was in Thessalonica, because that was a church in Philippi that he had already planted. And so as they would give money, he would live off of that. But if that money ran dry, he didn't live off the money in the Thessalonian people. He would go back to work. In Thessalonia, he went back to his old, another trade that he knew where he was a tent maker, which in those days, tents were leather, so you're a leather worker. He would do that kind of stuff then to make extra money on the side in between, fill in the gaps where he needed to financially. But he only lived off money from previous church plants, not from the new plant that he was birthing, you might say. Why? Because he was intentionally trying to be countercultural. He's trying to help them see and build a new society and community that is at complete odds with the other culture that's going on. And in that day, you guys remember, we know this, there was no university system in the world at that time. What they had were traveling teachers that were known as sophists. And these traveling teachers would go from city to city and they would set up shop in a synagogue or they'd set up shop in a uh, marketplace or they'd set up shop wherever the case may be. And they would give their teachings, they would give these lectures and they would charge per lecture. And the more well-known you were, the better you were as a speaker, kind of like rock stars of our day, the bigger name, the more expensive the ticket. And so these guys would make money off of that as they paid per speech. This even caused Paul problems with the Corinthian church because they were like, he doesn't charge anything, he must be terrible. Like this is what was going on in the culture at the time. And Paul was doing specific and intentional things as he came into that community to be unlike the culture that they lived in. Why? Because this is part of the work of God all along. And you go all the way back to the Old Testament. You look at some of the Old Testament laws that people get so hung up on. They're like, I don't understand. This whole church thing is stupid. The Old Testament says you can't eat shellfish. Why? Well, there's cultural reasons for that. It's not that shellfish are bad and we have been freed to eat shellfish. I think endless shrimp should be coming up any day, every fall at Red Lobster. Amen for cheesy biscuits. <laughs> but in that day, Paul was, or God was creating a people known as the nation of Israel. And his purpose with that nation was that they would be a missionary nation. That's why he says, I will bless all people through you. And he was giving them identifying marks all the way from circumcision and all these different things, ceremonial observances, all of this to set them apart as different from everyone else to get attention so that people would say, man, what is with those people? They're so different and they have laws, but they also have mercy. They have justice. They have love. What is all this stuff? And it was to set them apart. And that's the idea with the church too. What does John say in, in his epistle? They will know you are Christians by 
Your love one for another. The community that is being created in the New Testament in the church should be markably different than the community in the culture outside the church. And so Paul's creating this church. He's coming in as his teacher and he's like right out the gate. I'm not going to live off these people's money because I don't want to be marked as just another guy. This isn't just another speaker. This isn't just another philosophy. This isn't just another teaching. This is the king and this is a kingdom and this is the kind of community we're trying to build and I don't want to take any chances even if I have the right to of being mistaken for being someone else and here's the thing that we need to think about in doing so he's taking the idea of rights and the idea of earning and he's pushing them aside he's discarding them why because grace is not earned it's free and the community of the church is not built on our rights. It's not built on ourself. It's not built on what we earn. It's not built on what we deserve. It's not built on our narcissism. It is a community of people who imitate Paul, who imitate Christ. What did Christ do? King of all the earth. More majesty and wealth and comfort and power than we could ever possibly understand. But in Philippians, what does he do? It says, he didn't see that as something that needed to be held on to. He set that aside and he humbled himself. He became a man. At our place, we're like, I'm the man. No, that was the demotion you cannot possibly understand. And he humbled himself not just becoming man, not just setting aside comfort, but then intentionally stepping into the mess of humanity, understanding our sin and stepping into that, taking that on to himself, not going, clean it up, guys, but going, no, I'll step into this. I'll take their sin on myself. And how? By going to the cross, Jesus Christ took your sin, your shame, your guilt, our mess on his shoulders so that he could freely offer grace to you and I. And, Peter would say, so that he could set an example for how we are to live with one another. See, there's a, this is a completely different culture. What God's creating in the church, there are intentional things that he wants to happen in the church that are countercultural. That's why all the one another's of scripture, the, the, um, the community stuff that we're trying to emphasize and really relaunch here with huddle groups, all those different things, there are intentional aspects to that. Why? Just so you can make heritage cool? No, that we would intentionally be countercultural in such a way that it makes the rest of the world look at what goes on in here as markedly different and Christ-like. And then they would go, I, I need that. I don't know people that do that. Why do they do that? Man, I, look at how they care for one another. Look at how they love one another. And Paul is saying from the beginning, we're creating a culture where I have the right to earn, yeah, but I'm gonna set my right aside for your benefit. Yeah, I've worked really hard. I've earned the money that I have the right to, but I'm gonna set what I earn aside because grace isn't earned, it's freely given. And he's setting an example that is a Christ-like example that says, I will set my own comfort, my own benefit. I will not live for me. I will not be a narcissist anymore. I will live for the good of others over myself because that's what Christ has done for me. And yet in the church here, people are doing the exact opposite. In fact, 
they're worshiping and celebrating the sacrifices of others so that they can live off of them. Take a look at what he says in verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So the particular sin he mentions, the mess he's pointing out in the church, he uses the word busybodies. Now, um, that's not the original Greek word. It didn't say like Greek, 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 busybody, Greek, 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 Greek. That's not what it says. Um, That's just the best word that we have in translation. There's really sort of two nuances at play here, if I can help us bring some understanding to what he's saying right here. Um, The first, with the idea of busybody, what we mean is not just like nosy in terms of wanting to know what's going on. That's a lot of what we think of today. It means like just a nuisance, just in the way. And so the idea is if you can go back to a construction site, this is, we got a team of people. We have a crew building a house and everybody's got their different jobs and everybody's pulling together and everybody's working and doing all this stuff towards an end. But one of the guys on the team is doing nothing to bring anything to the table of the project. And he's just in the way. Like we're just carrying this guy's dead weight all along. We're, he's getting paid like us, but he's doing nothing to bring anything to the table. He's not contributing to the actual project. He's just a nuisance. And then the other idea, um, I, I guess the best way you could think of it is the idea of a professional mooch. Maybe think, maybe think someone in an entourage. So think someone made it big becomes a star, wins the lottery, whatever, and then all their friends or family members, all these people come out of the woodworks and they just become a conglomeration of yes men that just sing the praises of the guy who's made it. But the reason that they're doing it isn't about the guy so much because they weren't doing it before he was famous. It's about the money. And so in that day, remember something. What's the culture in the city of Thessalonica? This whole city is about money. It's the only reason you move to Thessalonica. It's a trade city. It's a port. It's a crossroads. People from all these different countries move to this place because that's where you make some money. And Paul's trying to create a different culture, but yet some people in here are not pitching in. They're just living off of it. They're living off of this money and they're doing it in the same way as if some professional mooch, like you're there, you'll always open the door for him. Like, Hey boss, come on in. Uh, and you got your hand out the whole time. By the way, boss, that was a great speech last night. That stuff you said, I was all about it. You're always just buttering someone up, but you're really just trying to ride their coattails is all you're trying to do. And so Paul's saying, Hey, there's some people in your church that are doing this. There's some people in there that are in a, they're they're taking the cultural emphasis of money that's in the culture outside. They're living off of that inside the church and their whole job right now, every, all, all they're after is the money. They're not bringing anything to the table. They're busybodies, they're nuisances, they're annoying, they're in the way, they're professional mooches. And he says, this is a big deal. He says, don't do this. Now, he has upheld the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. He says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that anyone write to you, for you know yourselves how to love one another. In fact, word of their generosity is spreading all over Macedonia. And he's like, you guys are doing it so well. In fact, you're doing it so well that some people are seeing opportunities here. And they're not carrying their weight. They're just jumping in. They're just riding coattails. And they're doing nothing to bring it to the table. So does he think that that's serious? What does he think they should do about it? Skip for a moment ahead to verse 14 and look what he says. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. 
that he may be ashamed. Yeesh. We can have an idealistic belief that says the church is open to anybody. That's not actually true. There were several times in Paul's writings in dealing with certain messes, something we refer to as church discipline, where he says you need to put that guy outside the church. Now, it's not an exclusionistic that goes, then get out and never come back and we just turn our back on them. The idea is this. If someone's living that way, they don't understand what the purpose of the church is. They don't understand this countercultural movement that Jesus has created. And what you need to do now is set them outside of that. Don't let them experience any longer the benefits of being part of that church family. N.T. Wright said it this way. He said, love doesn't mean trading on the goodwill of others or allowing them to trade on yours. But... It's not like this cold, hard, then get out. But what does he do? He says on in verse 15, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It's a teaching and discipleship opportunity. What's he really want this guy to do? There are tangible blessings and joys that come with being part of the church. And he wants this guy to be removed and set outside of those blessings. Why? So he can experience what it's like to not have them and learn to appreciate them and realize this is a community worth working for. And so he says, look, if you guys just keep letting him ride your coattails, he's experiencing all of the blessings, but that's not doing him any good because the purpose isn't the blessing. The purpose is we're supposed to follow this generous, selfless example of Christ, and he will never get there if you guys keep letting him mooch off of you. So you got to set him outside, but you got to keep calling him to something better. So it's not some private club, just get out of here, but it's, okay, look, I'm not going to do this, brother, but listen, you need to understand. And you say, that seems harsh, but this is Paul. And here's what Paul's saying. Keep in mind this idea of countercultural. He's saying, listen, this guy's still living for money. And I'm trying to teach you as a church to live for something that's so much better and provides so much more joy and is so good. That's why this same Paul who writes in Philippians about following the example of Christ, uses the phrase that we always misuse, and what does he say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does he mean? What he means by that is not I can win every boxing match. What he means is if I'm in jail, if I'm poor, if I'm starving, if I have nothing, or if I have everything, whatever it is God needs of me in this moment, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because he knows where joy really lies, and it's not in the money. And he doesn't want this guy in the church corrupting this economy that he's trying to create and ruining the example of everyone else. He's taking an element of the outside culture that doesn't belong and it's permeating the church. And he's trying to purify the church for the sake of the guy and for the mission of the people that are outside. But here's the problem, church. In our day and age, one of the things, if we want to become a gospel-centered or counter-cultural church, we have to be counter-cultural in many cases to church culture that people have gotten experience in over the years who did not understand this stuff. Where churches have just existed to be themselves, who have forsaken the mission of God to create community, who are all about shows or wealth or prosperity or all these different things. The same stuff that the prophets in the Old Testament are calling out Israel for. Israel, you're supposed to be a missionary people. What's wrong with you? You just got fat on the money. You did nothing for anyone. What's wrong with you? And so in many of our cases, 
we as a church have to be really intentional about doing things that separate us, not just from the culture outside the church, but from negative anti-Christian culture that is inside the church. And that's a shame, but worth it. Look what he says. I skipped a verse, if you noticed. It's another commonly quoted one, verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Think of the context of that verse. He's not just saying, go do good things for people and don't grow weary. Do good things. What he's saying is, the building construction project that God is doing of the church is worth the mess. Don't grow weary of it. Don't point your finger at the church all the time and go, I have had it. Or if you're the one that's been having people ride your coattails forever, don't get to a point where you're just like, then fine, I'm not gonna do anything for anyone anymore. Yes, don't, take, don't let people take advantage of you for sure, but never does he say stop giving. Yes, that we're supposed to embrace and love and forgive everyone. And yes, sometimes you're going to experience stuff from people that church discipline may even occur and things have to happen. But it never takes away from us the responsibility that God has called us to, to be that Christ life example. And he's saying, don't grow weary, church. I know it's hard. I know it's going to be difficult. I know it's countercultural. And it's against everything that's even in your own nature. But don't grow weary because it's worth it. Why? Because what's the theme of the whole thing? There is a king, not Caesar, not the ones of this world. And it's, the money's not what's worth it. The comfort's not what's worth it. There is a rest, church. There is a rest coming, but it's not now. And when we sell out for a rest now, we are settling for something less than what God has for us. He says, don't grow weary, keep going. No matter who you are, no matter your age, no matter your place in life, no matter how much money you got, it is worth striving for church community and striving for the gospel and living for the rest when our king returns. Because when our king returns, everything's going to be put back together. It's what he closes with. Look at verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness, genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I, first of all, I, I just love the humanity in this. Um, what he means is Paul, uh, Paul would write with a scribe or a secretary, uh, dictator, not dictator rule, but someone, what do you call that? When dictation, whatever it is. Someone would do the writing as he told him what to write. But then at the end, he would push him out of the way, grab the pen, and he would finish it himself. And he would say, hey, this is how you know it's me. But more importantly, he closes the letter by saying this idea of, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. And, and think, I want you to think about this. He's fighting for peace in the church so that the church can affect peace outside the church. And this is what I mean, and I'm going to close. I have 17 seconds left. <clears throat> Someone laughed. <laughs> so uh, this is what he means. In the Bible, when the Bible talks about peace, it doesn't mean what we are used to when we think of peace. We think of peace like there's a war, we need peace. Stop fighting, everybody just get along. It's so much more than that in the Bible. It's the concept of shalom. And in shalom, you understand what shalom is best by looking at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. Shalom is a right ordering of all relationships. Relationship between man and creation. Relationship between man and man and relationship between man and God. So think about creation. In the beginning, think about the relationship between man and creation. The, the animals 
did what Adam said. Like he had relationship with them. There were no thorns, no thistles in the plants. Creation was good. Those who think that environmentalism, and I don't mean like ultra, it becomes a religion. That's not what I'm talking about. But let's put this, conservationism is a Christian principle. Because God created peace with man and nature. And part of the reworkings of God is the rebuilding of that shalom. You can read about that in in Romans chapter 8. And we unbalance things all the time, but that's there. So in the early creation, man had peace with creation. In early creation, man had peace with one another. Remember when Adam, he gets his wife, and what's his response? Ah, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's a love song. He is gushing with her. They are partnered in something together. There's shalom. There is peace between the two of them. And then there's peace between man and God. They have right relationship. They're on God's team. They're on God's mission. Adam's job is even to cultivate the garden. If you think of the whole Bible story as as a whole, the Bible starts with a garden. It ends with a city. Adam's building something. Jesus was a carpenter. And so there's this right relationship in every way. And then man sins. And then you read Genesis 3 and you see what's broken. Relationship man and creation is broken. There's thorns, there's thistles, there's bugs, there's pestilence, snakes bite. Relationship man and man. These two that were gushing over one another at one point, Adam's now going, it's her fault. Which one, Adam? The one that you said, whoa, man, woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Yeah, her. She ruined it all. She made me do it. Just this blame game's now going on. And relationship man and God has been fractured by sin. Adam's hiding from God now instead of partnering with God. God's calling Adam. Where are you, Adam? What's happened? The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is reconciling all things back to himself. And so when God creates a countercultural church, the idea is this. We are an evidence of the shalom that got broken before. It's messy because we're not perfect, but we are working towards the shalom that God created in the world beginning. We are, and it's a testimony of what God is doing. And so we forgive one another even when someone wrongs us. Why? Because we understand that the tension and the failure there is the breaking of shalom. And more important than our own selfish rights and our being offended is the fact that God is building something new. So we're committed to that. We, we work for peace with God. We come to communion. We realize the importance of relationship being restored. We understand that it only comes in Christ. There's something God is doing in all of this. Don't grow weary in it. It's worth it. But the chief end is not peace itself. Please know that. This is where even things like environmentalism or any of those things can go completely out of whack. If you put all of your emphasis on that thing, you're going to be disappointed. If you go into it like, oh, this is what church is doing and everything Jeff said, I would love that because I've missed that and I've been wounded before and you put the emphasis or the ownness of peace on the church, you've stopped too short because it is the Lord who brings peace. And so in everything that happens, we have to look beyond that. And it is only when looking to Christ that you can set your own selfishness aside. Because if we just look at each other in the church, we will brew selfishness. Because no one is worthy of the kind of love God commands us to give one another. Everyone in here is a jerk by nature if you will. 
We're all selfish, self-centered, narcissists by nature. And if we just look at ourselves the whole time as a reason to do the things that God is calling us to do, there is no reason we should do any of it. But if we look to the Lord of peace and go, oh man, but yeah, that dude was a jerk. He ripped me off and rode my coattails and said bad things about me on social media and I don't want to forgive him and he doesn't deserve my forgiveness, but man, Jesus forgave me because I sinned against him. I slandered his name. I have ripped Jesus off. I've given things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet Jesus forgave me and that's the example I follow. You become part of a completely different culture here in the church and it's worth fighting for and it's messy and it's hard and it's bloody and it's dirty and it's abrasive and it hurts and you have to deal with conflict resolution and you have to work stuff out and you have to, God forbid, humble yourself in front of other people. But it's not about the thing, it's about Jesus and this is what he's coming to do. And heritage, and let me just speak to, if you're like, I'm part of heritage, let me speak to you. This is worth fighting for. When difficulties come and you just want to bail, it's worth sticking it out and seeing, man, what's, I know this is wrong, what this guy did to me, but maybe the Lord's doing something in me through this. And just maybe God's building something. Just maybe I don't yet see the finished product, but just maybe God's doing something different. May we pursue that peace because our king is coming. And one day, stuff's gonna get a whole lot better. Amen? Will you stand and pray with me? <clears throat> so admonish the idol. Pitch in. Pitch in. Serve. Love. Give. Forgive. Humble. Pitch in. Let's do the work of church because of the free gift of grace that Jesus has given us. Father, to that end, I pray that would be the testimony of this church. I pray, God, that your will would be done at Heritage Christian Fellowship as it is in heaven. I pray for growing spirits of humility and, Lord, for, for growing fever for your work. I pray, God, that you would show us all where we're to pitch in, where we're to serve how we're to help in building this countercultural thing known as the church here at this specific, specific spot in Medford, Oregon. But Lord, not for our own glory or our own eventual comfort, but Lord, may you do this for your glory and may people around us see what's going on in heritage and just think we're weird in a beautiful way and be drawn to you. Forgive us our sins, Lord. Lead us not, Lord, in, in, into ways of selfishness as we've been. Lord, lead us into this new kingdom, this new culture that you have for us. And may we keep our eyes upon you. And to that end, I pray, Lord, amidst the floods, amidst the fires, amidst the difficulties of life, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and restore shalom to our world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, guys, next week, Luke chapter 1. I love you guys. Have a great, great week. Go love on some people for Jesus.